Welcome to Two Guys, One Book, where two friends tackle their reading list one book at a time. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Two Guys, One Book. As always, always, I am Brian. I'm joined with... Tim. Tim. Man, a few words. Uh, But no. um, Today we are discussing the coddling of the American mind. How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. Mm-hmm. So, this is a Brian pick. I picked this book because Why? we are all just a bunch of snowflakes in the world that are slowly getting melted by the sun. Um, no, Brian's in edgy mode. <laughs> no. Um, well, we're all in edgy mode, Tim. We're in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis. So. Yeah. Things are pretty serious right now. Yeah, things are very serious. Well, things are always serious, Tim. Um, you just take life too uh, casually. No, hey, I, this is going to be a distraction from all the dark yes. news that's happening. <laughs> really? I don't know. This is I don't an think this is a very good escape because we're going to be talking about how millennials and Gen Z people are too coddled. We should do a trigger warning before this yes, podcast. Yes, trigger warning. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be talking about things that make young people uncomfortable. No, not really. I mean, I feel like this book, it sounds at first like it's some sort of right-wing, young people are spoiled these days type of, of take. But the author is very liberal. Very he liberal. mentions. Yes. Yeah. Or I think both of them. Both of them are. Yeah. One's like more centrist, one's left. But yeah, so I feel like the the title and the subtitle can can set some people off and be like, ah, I don't need to read that. And that was my first impression as well. When browsing the Kindle store, that's when I came across it. Um, read the description, read a little bit into it, and I was like, this sounds legit. And and so I picked it because I feel like it's a, also a good book that stimulates discussion. It has hit on very... Uh, key points in today's society that I think should be looked at are worth reviewing and um yeah what did you think when I picked this book and I thought it would lead to an interesting discussion for sure Uh because it seems like all these controversy controversies are were a little bit after our time you were in college a little before me yes and then I and then it was like kind of like right after me more like 2013 Uh I graduated 2012 oh so it's kind of like I think a little bit after my time, but so it's interesting to get this perspective and all these details. Right. Yeah, no, I, I've i been amazed at how much college campuses appear to have changed. I graduated college in 20, 2007, well, well, the first time, <laughs> and then went back to school and finished in 2011. You my got two college, degrees. I have two degrees, yes. My college experience was one of just learning of getting a degree, it wasn't so much about, I don't know, social activism or being a social justice warrior or political correct. I mean, like that stuff, I mean, didn't really come up at all. I knew that being on a college campus, you're around various people with various uh, perspectives and beliefs about life, religion, and everything else in between. Uh, so that you have to be respectful of other people's thoughts and feelings, of course. And so I, I kind of just felt like co- my college experience was one of inclusion and uh, education, and it didn't really feel like anything was under attack, if that makes sense. Yeah, at school it didn't seem like many people 
had these big causes that they were fighting about. Like I can remember a couple examples here and there, but overall it seemed like most of the student body was pretty laid back and just focused on like uh, school and partying basically, mm-hmm. like right. more or less. Yeah, yeah, let's go into the book. So it's kind of broken down into four different parts. The first part, they they talk about three bad ideas or three untruths that have caused uh, this upheaval and, and uh, coddling of America's mind. And then the part two was bad ideas and actions, some examples of these untruths being magnified on college campuses. And part three was how did we get here? And part four is wising up, like what can we do about these things? And so the three untruths are the untruth of fragility, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, the untruth of emotional reasoning, always trust your feelings, and the untruth of us versus them. Life is a battle between good people and evil people. And the authors highlight these three untruths as things that millennials and Gen Z people have apparently learned through their upbringing and through social media that caused them to feel uh, attacked and unsafe in, in, in environments when they really shouldn't be. Because let's, let's break it down. I mean, well, what, what do you think of those three untruths first? Yeah, that's kind of the core thesis of mm-hmm. the book. So we definitely should get into it. But if we could take a step back real quick sure. and talk about the authors, because okay. I think that kind of helps put this in context more. So Jonathan Haidt, I think he's more, most famous for The Righteous Mind that was published a few years ago about like how we have these like evolutionary uh, psychologies that help um, indicate our like political leanings and, um, and that sort of thing. So he's, he's pretty well versed in, in that background. And then the other guy... I forget his name. Uh, Greg. Yeah, Greg Lucchiano. Yeah, so he has a background in like psychology and mm-hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy. So it's kind of like they both have these interesting perspectives to bring to the table and have like the political, like historical, and then psychological side as well. So I thought they were qualified to talk about this. Oh, absolutely. I yeah. agree. And I think that's a good point that a book like this does take on a life, gen- you know, based on the author's experiences and having two people that are that are capable, I think, of putting their own, they, they, they have their own experience in their professional realm that they use to examine the untruths and, the, and the, the thoughts in this book, but they don't let their personal feelings get in the way too much, I feel. You know, like, they take it purely professional point of view. And they've seen this, like, firsthand being right. on campus and being, like, a professor. Um, but the the one thing I will say though is that they're of like I think the baby boomer generation, mm-hmm. and there's that uh, stereotype that like baby boomers and Gen Z or like younger kids, millennials in general, don't really see eye to eye and kind of right. clash. Right. So you could interpret this as uh, a baby boomer cliche, like writing off Gen Z, you know. You could issues, but I I feel like they do a good job of actually developing and and you know backing up their arguments yeah true right i agree okay Uh, so okay the three untruths let's get into those right so the first one what doesn't kill you makes you weaker i think this is a very good untruth because i mean you know the whole the whole saying is what doesn't kill me makes me stronger and that's what that's what they that's the thought that they want to uh, pass on in the in this book is that human beings are not fragile items. Like that's one thing they talked about is fragility versus non-fragility and resiliency. And so 
something resilient can withstand most things and something fragile can can cannot withstand much of anything at all but then there's this anti-fragility that is like that gets damaged from life experiences like a human person might but then bounces back and becomes resilient over time and i feel like that's what they want that we as a society has have um kind of put pressure on everyone should feel good all the time you shouldn't have any bad thoughts or any bad feelings and if you have and if you feel uncomfortable by what someone else says then you know by golly we should do everything we can to just shield you from what that person is saying so that you don't have any bad feelings at all in your whole life <laughs> you're starting to sound condescending i am <laughs> What do you think of this first untruth? Yeah, I mean, the basic idea is solid that I think we all grow from adversity and you need that in your life. And a lot of people who go through hardships end up saying like, yeah, it was tough, but it kind of made me the person that I am today. Right. So it's not saying like everything that's bad is ultimately good for you because like there's a lot that you shouldn't have to go through in life. But the general point being go through some challenges, overcome them, and you'll be stronger and better off for it. Right. And I, I would say that the author's also try to make a point that like we have not done a good job as society um, differentiating between the bad stuff that should never happen to a person like sexual assault or or you know abuse of any kind versus like just being uncomfortable around people that don't think the way you think about certain things the authors lay out a, a, a good example of how there's this false equivalency of like words can can hurt damage your emotions and emotional damage can lead to harm and therefore words are violence but they're saying but then the authors are saying well the words to violence is a big leap there yes words can cause emotional distress which can cause harm but there's various degrees of harm and that we gotta learn to differentiate between mild harm and severe harm before we say words can incite or cause violence to a person yeah I mean and the big examples they give in this are kind of like college uh, speakers coming to college campuses and then people being like really upset about certain speakers who are invited right and the, and the students causing protests and preventing the speakers from actually practicing their First Amendment rights right and that's 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 the thing is like even with yes college campus protests should a hundred percent go on and are a hundred percent legit but like to the point where they're obstructing other people's First Amendment rights, I still can't get behind that, even if it is disgusting people like that Milo guy. Yeah. You know, like, let them talk, and everyone will know that how stupid they sound. I think but, it's kind of like the whole concept of, like, an internet troll. You know, they say, like, don't mm -hmm. feed the troll, because they only grow from that bad publicity. Right. Where you're giving into... Your, your reaction is what someone like that wants, ultimately. Right, exactly. You just have to ignore them, and mm -hmm. if they're not getting attention, then they kind of fade away. Right. Because then they can go on media outlets and say, my First Amendment rights were were trampled on today by these communist, leftist, you know, student organization groups. When, if you just let them say their piece, they don't get nearly as much press because not many people care about what they actually have to say. Yeah, just ignore them because, right. like, right. by trying to stifle that speech, mm -hmm. you're making it a bigger story. Right. Exactly. So that's the first untruth. Yeah. Second one: always trust your feelings. Yeah. Right. That's not right. <laughs> I, I feel like that's right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say that's right. Really? In what way do you think that is right? To... No, I'm just yeah making a meta joke. Uh huh. Um, 
Yeah. Always trust your feelings. Yeah, it's like there are facts and then there's how we feel. Right. And oftentimes those two things are not aligned and we just have to come to terms with that. Yeah, exactly. And and I feel like I am big on existentialism and stoicism. And this is big key on stoic stoicism is that you have control over your feelings. I know a lot of times it may not feel like that. And I know a lot of times, you know, feelings are hard to uh, master. But you can, if you do not let other p- people's words bother you, then they will not bother you. You know, and and I genuinely am a am a student of that philosophy, and I believe that to my core that that people have power over a lot more in their life than they realize. So I think it's tough because I I'll admit I've been through tough times. I you know like I we've talked about this on previous episodes about my health history of Hodgkin's lymphoma, but then after that, I was very aimless in life and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't, I didn't see a point in go, to going on some days. I was, I was depressed. I saw a therapist. And so that's another reason this book speaks to me is what they talk about cognitive behavioral therapy is I went through all that and it's helped me a lot. Another thing that's helped me is philosophy and stoicism is a big one of them is, is, is one of them that's really helped me out because that's helped me realize that you, you can, you have control over what you focus on in life and what you focus on can can really improve or uh, not improve your life depending on what that is so always trust your feelings is is definitely to me is on truth yeah just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean it's reality right that's another good point and the last one Mm -hmm. life is a battle between good people and evil people yeah that's just this false dichotomy. Right. It's not that simple. False dichotomy, which is a uh, side effect of, or is one of the... Cognitive distortion. Yes, cognitive distortions. Thank you, Tim, mm-hmm. of cognitive behavioral That therapy. list of distortions was yeah. pretty interesting. Yeah. Really. yeah. Yeah, at the end of the book, in one of the appendices, it had a whole list of the cognitive distortions associated with psychology and clinical behavior. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think of that, Tim? Ba- battle of good people versus evil people. Are you a Sith Lord? Do you only view the, the world in, in light and dark and no in between? Uh, a Sith does not deal in absolutes. Yes. So. No, a Sith only deals in absolutes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Come on, Tim. I'm not that yeah. uh, into it. So, um, What, Star Wars? You're not into no, Star Wars? No, I, I like Star Wars. It's just like you can go down a rabbit hole with the yeah, philosophy of it all. Okay, so just tying those into like young people though right so it interferes with their like social emotional and intellectual development right Mm -hmm. so it's hard for them to become like autonomous adults in the real world when they believe these things right always trust my feelings the world is good and evil yes and the first one that i forgot (laughs) Uh, what doesn't kill me what does not get yeah yeah yes and it's like that's just not how the real world works yeah but if you go from school you know elementary junior high Mm -hmm. high school college and the whole time like you've got this like safe comfortable environment mm-hmm. and your parents and family is always behind you and school is always supporting you then it's like then you get to the real world and like work can it's be pretty shock. tough yeah. yeah a lot of people are fortunate in their in their early life through adolescence to have a supportive family even if you know sometimes even like uh parents can get divorced but still have a a working relationship of child rearing in a protective environment and getting them through uh, through school and 
Yes, a lot of people are fortunate to have a good upbringing in America. And then they go to college, and then, like you said, when they enter the real world, they're all of a sudden, you know, faced with the, 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 the reality of the real world, which is there are people that are dumber than you that will make more money than you. Or there are people that are bad people in their personal life, but good at their job. Or other things that, that bother you and, and, and you feel like shouldn't be the way the world is. Like, oh, people, there are people out there that can't get insulin because they can't afford it or they have to choose between medications because their health insurance is, is lousy. You know, like, just because, uh, where am I going with this? It, yeah, pe- people face the stark reality of the real world that are un- underprepared for it. Yeah. Well, let's put it that in context is. of like a simple example. So like, yeah, thank you. if you, <laughs> I know you've got a lot of feelings. I do. And, and I can't, trust. I, yeah, I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> no, it's good. Woo. You got a lot of passion. Mm-hmm. Um, so like an example, you have conflict is inevitable at work, like in right. 99, whatever percent of cases, but it's like, you can't get your mom and dad to talk to your manager. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like at the end of the day, you've got to navigate your own life and deal mm-hmm. with your own problems. So I think that's more or less what this book is getting at is that you've got to learn to be kind of independent and manage conflict without everything just being handed to you or easy for you. Right. But I will say like in fairness to this younger generation is that a lot of the context of what's going on isn't necessarily their problem. I mm-hmm. think um, I'm not trying to like kind of enable a victim mindset, but I will say like there's a lot of conditions that have, uh, you know, led to them being the way that they are, I think, uh, ranging from like, and we'll go into this more, but like mm-hmm. parenting practices, um, you know, the state of the economy and society, mm-hmm. um, just various different things that have kind of social contributed media. to this. Yeah. Social media, a huge yeah. one for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, and that's what they go in the book about too, is the, how do we get here part is, is interesting because they look at the various things and yeah, it's not the fault of millennials or Gen Z people. I mean, like, it's just the way that they've been brought up. Some things in life there is nobody to blame for. It is just recognizing the fact that that's kind of how society has evolved and how to address that going forward. Not so much to point blame as to, like, this shouldn't happen because that person, you know... Yeah, we don't want this to sound like an attack on right. them. And no. the book's not necessarily no, an attack. No, not at all. So maybe we can go through the explanations. So yeah. they give six explanations for mm-hmm. what brought us here today. And just to run through them quickly. So there's uh, rising political polarization and cross-party animosity on the right and the left. Um, there's rising levels of teen anxiety and depression. Changes in parenting practices. Decline of free play. Growth of campus bureaucracy and the rising passion for justice in response to major national events. And uh, that combined with changing ideas about what justice requires. Mm-hmm. So those are the six different things that have kind of led us to where we are. And do you want to kind of go through and break them down a little more? I mean, we can. I'm not really prepared to break them down individually. I am more prepared just to rant on my I'm, soapbox. Yeah, see, this is, <laughs> I feel like you've got rants and I'm trying to like have a little structured <laughs> flow to this. It's Structure good. away, Tim. No, no it's, it's good, good to have this. Uh, yeah. A mixed approach. No, yeah, yeah. I think no. I think the going through it will lead to good mm-hmm. conversations, though. So rising political polarization and cross-party animosity. Mm-hmm. Um, one element of this is like we lost a common enemy in 
the Soviet Union, you know, going back in our history a bit, was probably the last big major enemy we had. We had demographic shifts, so everybody moving to cities with people who think like-minded like them. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had, like, Newt Gingrich and hostile oh, party relations where he just had to make everything a confrontational element mm-hmm. to it. And I think that really contributes to where we are today is that everything everything seems like a sport where it's like you're on this team or that team, yep. and it's all about winning and beating the other yep. party. So Yep, that's exactly right. That's what we've become. And so it's no surprise that, the, like, that third untruth about life is about between good people and evil people like that's just naturally how things have become more polarized that the younger people are going to pick up on all those everything you just said the bigger picture to me is like and we can jump to the campus bureaucracy part of it where um yeah like basically at the end of the day students are customers to universities Ah, and universities at some point shifted from being all about learning to being like I don't know, the four-year party, as some called it, or, like, some kind of um, happy place for four years. <laughs> like, it's all about building the biggest rec center uh, and, yes. and that sort of thing, and just attracting students with this, like, about lifestyle, campus life, yeah. community, and all these buzzwords. Yeah. And it's like, mm-hmm. and sure, like, there's some of that and some of it's positive, but at the end of the day, shouldn't it be more about learning? Mm-hmm. But, so, what I'm getting at is when it's all about seeing the student as a customer, then it's all about making them happy. So, they feel that, like, campus... Uh, administrators feel the need to give in to all their requests mm-hmm. because at the end of the day it's like we don't want to lose funding and we don't want to lose future alumni donations and right. all these things right so there's an inherent flaw in the incentives of it of college that's a good point too I, I agree that the that yeah camp college campuses are using that whole the customers are always right motto maybe a little more than what they should and the fact that they want I mean, they need the students to keep coming there to maintain their revenue. So what about, uh, like, teen anxiety and depression? Mm -hmm. You think social media is a big part of this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think um, they did a good job of laying that out. So, yeah, they found that um, not only these authors, but also other um, psychologists that they uh, reference in this book found that there are... um, Two activities that are significantly correlated with depression and other suicide-related outcomes. Electronic device use and watching TV. On the other hand, there are five activities that have inverse relationships with depression. Sports and other forms of exercise. Attending religious services. Reading books and other print media. In-person social interactions and doing homework. So they found that electronic device use and watching TV are, are... correlate to more rising anxiety and depression in younger but younger people. let's be clear is like we're both kind of nerdy and yes. like tv shows and some video games and right we're not hating on we're on not that. saying that they're all bad but they did they did say that like two hours seems to be the sweet spot that lets young people maintain relationships online get you know and play video games or get creative with other apps that whatever you can do but Anything more than two hours just seems to just not have any benefit. I think you need a healthy balance. Oh, absolutely. Get outside, play a game. Yeah. 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 So I think it's very interesting that, that yeah, and, and social media allows them to have immediate comparisons with all their friend groups, whereas when I was in high school, we didn't have Facebook. I know. 
mind-blowing. <laughs> there was a time before Facebook. The internet wasn't invaded, invented well, yet. No, the internet was around. <laughs> I had to go downstairs to my parents' computer and hit dial up the dial-up. <laughs> and go, yeah. And it was super slow. You click on a link, and it took like 30 seconds for the web the page to load. You know how long 30 seconds is, Tim? It's a long time. And so you'd have to, then the whole page would load, and then you can read what you wanted to read or whatever. Then you have to click back, and then you have to wait another 30 seconds. But anyway, so I didn't have Facebook, so I didn't constantly know what my my friends were doing outside of school. So I had nothing to compare to. So I didn't feel like I was missing out. You know? What I didn't think about as much before reading this book was how dramatic that is for teen girls especially mm-hmm. is that the beauty standards are a lot like more significant i think and then also the way they might um deal with conflict and that sort of thing they're more like relationship oriented mm-hmm. in general so right. i think social media for them can be really like a powerful thing and, and used negatively in a lot of ways right. that's a good point that that wasn't i'm glad you brought that up because they they in the book they describe how boys are more competitive in like a physical nature like in person like like you know like in sports or or you know intimidation in person and physically whereas young girls are definitely more uh using uh relationships and social intimidation which is can be easily done through social media in fact, like I would say social media is perfect for it. Like you said, the beauty standards, like they have these filters on their phones, on these apps now. You can change all the filters and make yourself look different things, you know? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm making myself sound really old by talking about all these apps they got and these, these filters cameras. things. Yeah. Got these but, um, but yeah, it's, it's much more damaging to young girls than... Well, don't you think, boys. just to tie it back to college, it's like you're going to be more on edge if you're like constantly stressed about how you look online and your online mm-hmm. presence and profile. It's like this whole level of psychological, mental uh, stress that right. is relatively new to society. Right. So. Yeah. And then like even to another level, like there can be infighting between like-minded groups. Whereas if so-and-so isn't nearly as vigilant on, you know, women's rights as the other person, they're like, where were you at the rally? Or where were you, you know, like that, that, that's what I can't stand. It's like the infighting between, Groups that ultimately want the same thing, you know, and that happens all the time. Not just in college; it happens in adult, real-world situations too, where, where it, where, and it comes down to that justice chapter too, where if we don't feel like some people are putting in an, enough time to warrant the credit for what they're getting, then we're more apt to call them out, even if it's within our own group. I think it all comes down to signaling. Is mm. that online? It's like. You want to be seen as caring a certain way about a certain thing. Mm-hmm. So it's like this call-out culture and just, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm more just because I called out this person and I earned, like, internet respect. Right. So it's just like we're incentivizing people to call people out yeah. constantly. Yeah. And that's it's that's not right. Yeah. Do you want to talk about um, parenting? Do you think, yeah, sure. Do you think parenting has changed a lot since, like, you and I, how we grew up versus, like, a little later? Oh, I think so. Do you not so, think so? I mean, I don't know. How would, how would you say? I'm, I'm not like that in touch with how people are being parented these days, but True. in a general sense. I don't, I mean, it does, to me, it does feel like there is more structure and everything is planned out and everyone has their Google calendars synced to when 
Little Timmy is going to be here. I'm sorry. Why, not, you, why is I, Timmy I didn't mean to use Timmy. Timmy. <laughs> all right, little little Johnny. Okay. That's uh, you know, is here or there, or going to this friend or that friend, or doing this or having violin practice and all this other stuff. And like so, I I I hope. I mean, you're right. I don't have any kids. I only know of a few people that have kids, and they're all younger, so they're not even close to being preteen yet. But I would like to think that they give them time just to do whatever the kid wants mm-hmm. and let them leave the house, too. I think that's another big thing is trust them to leave the house and play in the neighborhood or right, go for a bike ride or something without being monitored. Right. That's one thing I appreciated. I grew up, I like there were times when I would, like as I'm running out the door, I'm like, Mom, I'm going to be outside. And like, she'd be like, okay. And I'm outside. And I'm like, I lived on a cul-de-sac in a small village, so it's not like there was anything to worry about. And I wasn't, I knew, I, I knew the bar- what, what the barriers were. I knew not to go like outside of my neighborhood or like across town. What if a stranger had some like really good candy though? Uh, you know I'm <laughs> a sucker for candy. I mean, it's hard to judge a parenting style until right. we are parents. But I think the general point the author was making was like, a lot of parents these days grew up in the 70s era where there was a lot of violence and, uh, you know, all these serial killers and abductions and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So I think that's part of the psychology today with parents being overly protective. But, um, yeah, being abducted is such, like, a statistical anomaly for the most part. Right. And, like, kids need free play to kind of just do their own thing mm-hmm. and, um, you know, learn how to manage conflict with other kids as you're growing up. You don't need everything planned, protected, uh, you know, laid out for you. You need to kind of figure things out on yourself, on right. your own. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I did think that, that that chapter was very informative and enlightening, but I think there were some things missing in that, and I think Megan, the, the beautiful, smart, lovely person that I have in my life, brought up some good points, because she read this book, too. Um, and she said that, you know, having activities all the time sometimes is what the kid wants, too. And, and also, the, there are times when um, if both parents are working, that's what you have to do to, to kind of coordinate childcare and to make sure that you have a plan for them to go somewhere after school and be, while both parents are working. And, and, you know, it's interesting that they didn't talk about that or maybe divorce. You know, like, they didn't, they didn't talk much about, like, the fact that families have changed over the years from, you know, one parent mostly... A lot of times the man working and the mom staying, the, the wife staying at home watching the kids all day. So that has changed to maybe, you know, both parents are working or maybe they got a divorce and have separate, you know, living arrangements. So that's something they didn't really address in the book, but I think was smart because they didn't want to have to like, they didn't want to assign blame to having two working parents or divorced parents as the reason why kids are like this. There's plenty of other causes that are that have led to uh, young people being coddled. Yeah, and I don't think they're saying activities are bad. Like, right. you know, extracurriculars have their place and are right. great, I think, in a lot of ways for development, mm-hmm. but you need to balance that out with some right. independent time as well. Right. Well, okay, so just putting the doubts together, like, mm-hmm. if you're a kid who was born around, like, 1995, you had super productive parents, you know, you grow up in a little bit of a bubble and mm-hmm. then you finally get to college and it's like, 
you know, you start hearing opinions that you don't agree with or something you find offensive. And, and it's normal and natural, I think, to find uh, things that conflict with your views and your outlook because that's kind of how you grow is um, hearing different things and judging where you stand on them. But some people just get so hurt and offended by it that it's like... It, it prevents them from growing from it. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they get... And that's I think that's the whole point of this book is that some young people are coddled and sheltered to the point where if something conflicts with their worldview, they can't even see past that. So they can't grow from it because they are just so overwhelmed with this thought that they never had before that something else might be different from the way they view things. And it's not even, and it can be as simple as like an author like Mark Twain who wrote a book a long time ago, like Huckleberry Finn, that's a Mm -hmm. classic. And then there's a word that's like about a word that they find offensive. Mm -hmm. But in context, it's not meant to be harmful. Right. And it's like, you can write off this entire book because you're offended by this, the use of this word. Right. And it's recognizing those things. It's being able to... to and, the nuances. Yes. Of, yeah. Right. And it's, and it's using cognitive behavioral therapy or other strategies that might help you take it, remove yourself from your perspective, see the bigger context, like you said, and realize that, yeah, that, that word in this book is just a word. And we have learned from years since that that was bad. And it should not be used in that way, but this was written a long time ago, and yeah, time to get over that and move on. And then, then, then that just helps you, I think, take the next step to just proceed with your life. Because the authors talk a lot about how like universities are supposed to be this place where free speech is protected, mm-hmm. and you're supposed to be kind of open-minded to new ideas. Like that's like a big core right. principle to a lot of schools, right? Right. So I think the bigger message in all this is like, everybody chill out. (laughs) I mean, just to simplify it. But to be fair, like if you think about when this is published, maybe a few years ago Mm -hmm. and, and the news in the past few years, it seems like there haven't been as many controversies. I mean, not that I, you mean on college campuses? campuses? Yeah. And I say that, but then on the other day I was like, saw a video on YouTube or Twitter or something where some, and this is in Ohio, like Ohio Uh university, there is like. Um, some right-wing speaker, controversial guy who, like, came to Ohio U campus, and there's video of, like, all these protesters just, like, being kind of violent and, like, throwing stuff at his car as he's, like, driving away. Like, that wasn't that long ago. But, I mean, generally speaking, I haven't heard as much of this being in the news, so... Is that just because the news has gotten so crazy in the last couple years? There's something going on. Yeah, like, I mean, that's just it. Like, the volume, the magnitude of the news has increased to a level that I don't think we've ever experienced before. Where, especially now with all this virus stuff, like, yeah. I mean, but like even before, like the all the p- politics bullshit that goes on, it's just, it's just unrelenting. And I think, I think you're absolutely right that we don't hear about these campus things going on. Maybe they've lessened, hopefully. Maybe that's one silver lining about all this craziness in the Trump administration is that maybe this helps students on college campuses realize, you know what, there's a whole lot of other bigger stuff going on than what we're dealing with on our campus. Let's, let's take the measured and, and, and uh, you know, reasonable approach here on our campus 
because we don't want to be like them. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about perspective, engaging where you're at in life. Like, I mean, just to think about how so many people in the world and like developing countries are struggling just to get by and survive. And it's like, you're, you know, you're causing all this uproar because you're offended by some little thing. It's like, I don't want to write off anybody's issues or what they've been through. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's like, have perspective. But one thing I will say the author brought up is a good point. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of these kids grew up the first major news event that they were in, like introduced to was 9-11, yeah. which is like, that's got to be traumatizing yeah. in itself. I know. And then you get older and you have like the war in Iraq mm-hmm. and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. You have, um, you know, all these different movements and crises and things going on. Right. It can be, you have to think about how, how all this is amplified in the news and social media and what that can do to someone's psyche, you right. know? Right. I think I think they yeah they address that and they and I think that's a good point is is there are so many world events that have shaped how society has gone in the last twenty years that that that's the, I think a good is what the the authors get at is that it, this isn't the fault of the millennials or Gen Z people or the young people today. I mean, they have they have grown up in extraordinary times that other generations have didn't experience when they were coming up in their formidable years. So, I think that's the like. There's no point in blame here. It's just saying that like this is kind of where we are, and let's you know try to learn from this. It's recognizing the bad yeah. situation and all the modern history around it, but also not absolving anyone of blame and saying you've got to kind of take responsibility for your own mm-hmm. uh, well-being and not get too caught up in all the drama of these right. day-to-day right. events. What I thought was crazy on some colleges is like, if we're talking about justice, like mm-hmm. if the uh, administrator didn't do enough or like some right. college president or something then the people, like, some students could really get in, a, in an uproar about it. Right. It's like, you didn't take enough steps, so you should be fired, and then this per- person right. should be fired. And it's like, like going back to the culture thing, mm-hmm. it's like this vengeful, spiteful path where you're trying to bring all these people down. And it's like, right. maybe some people didn't do enough or said this wrong thing at the wrong time, but it's like to bring down an entire person's livelihood because mm-hmm. they mis- took a misstep. I think there's one more thing I wanted to bring up relative to that. About the middle section? Yeah, so, uh, well, just in general, when it comes mm-hmm. to, like, uproar online and outrage and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, a big scary thing to me these days is, like, self-censorship, where mm. a lot of people are afraid to speak out because they're afraid of getting called out by, like, these angry mobs of right. social justice warriors or whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, a lot of people probably think others are going too far and just overreacting here and there, mm-hmm. but they're afraid to say anything because they don't want to be on the other end of this wrath. <laughs> so it's like you're kind of letting people get off the hook. And and there's a good book. I mean, I haven't read it, but it, <laughs> I've, I've listened to like an interview with a guy. Um, it's called <laughs> So You've Been Publicly Shamed or something. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. I've heard of that. John one. Ronson, or John yeah. Ronson, but um, something like that. But uh-huh. he talks about people who've been like, publicly shamed on Twitter. Right. And it's got to be kind of traumatizing to have, like, thousands of people just, mm-hmm. like, tell you these horrible things right. and threaten you and, like, just because maybe you made a mistake or... Mm-hmm. I mean, I know there's, like, a Black Mirror episode about this, but yeah. anyway. But no, I, I, I agree that the, the we definitely take things too far sometimes without acknowledging the fact that the other person is human 
And like, that's one thing they say is like, give people the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. Like, don't assume that the other person has the worst intentions in mind. Mm -hmm. Give them the benefit of the doubt, which means letting that person in your mind, give them the perspective of just someone who is naive and doesn't know any better. And I agree with that. And I think a bigger picture thing too is like, pick your battles. Like, or like, there's another expression that's like, is this really the hill you want to die on or something like that? <laughs> yeah. You know, like, yeah. is this, like, I know it's good to take stands and this sort of uh-huh. thing, but like at a certain point you need to pick your battles and say right. like, is this worth all of the uproar that it's going to cause? Right. And he gave a good example of like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh-huh. And how like he brought about so much change and really turned the tide in people's minds. And he did it through these uh, this peaceful activism. Because if he could show like, hey, we're all about like just trying to be like, you know, contributing members of society and like great, like good people ultimately, then it's not about um, this aggressive confrontational tactics. You're winning their hearts and minds. Right. Yeah. And yeah, and the, and the one thing the author said about King was that he, when people were attacking him, he wasn't returning the attack on his accusers. He was trying to explain to his accusers about the common humanity that they all share. Right. And how, and and if you can you can tap into, in, they also talk about um, enlarging the circle, of including more and more people. Whereas it's not like a circle around Martin Luther King Jr. and his activists, and a circle around the people that disagree with him. Martin Luther King Jr. is trying to circle all of them together as a common like human decency like on on a on just a common level like we want these things for all humanity right and and that and then then the accusers can see dr king and other people protesting included in with them and together and if and if you can get your accusers or anybody to see you and them on the same level then they are more inclined to agree that everyone is equal on that level yeah and i think what he did so well is like he appealed to like these core american beliefs Mm -hmm. and these core uh maybe like somewhat religious like elements as well and it's like these things that people identify with and connect with and it's all about finding that common ground and saying Mm -hmm. like he was saying like look this is what you believe in and i'm just saying you need to apply it to like our group of people as well right and that's how we you know come to have more rights exactly (laughs) Um, one good idea I thought, mm-hmm. and I don't have a whole lot else, but this is one more thing I think is worth yeah. mentioning is, yeah. um, he thought a gap year is a good idea for younger kids. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great idea because I mean, just from a practical sense, it seems like me and almost everyone I knew changed their major at some point. It's mm-hmm. like, you don't know what you really want to do. Right. And I think having a year to kind of find yourself a bit and try some different things in the real world gives you this good exposure and experience that you can take back to school and then you have a more clarity probably about what direction you want to head in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great great point and a great idea that if you take a gap year in some sort of employment or volunteer service, you know, somewhere, you know, it could be local, it could be in the, somewhere else in the country, it could be internationally, whatever. Just I think it helps ease you into the real world. So that if you take a gap year, do something for a little while, experience that, and then go to college, I think then you'll be more adjusted for the, for the college lifestyle. Mm. 
of being more independent and not relying on your parents or anybody else or and 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 being self-sufficient and realizing that you're going to experience um people that are going to conflict with you or not have the same views as you and so i think that will help prepare people for college better and i think you'll just have a better sense of why you're learning what you're learning and how it can connect to what you'll do in the future yeah yeah i don't know what i would have done with a gap year though what would you have done with a gap year so ideally i think programs like americorps and there's like a conservation corps where you just work on like trails and um Mm -hmm. national park type stuff or like help teaching or some kind of thing like that i think those programs are good because you meet a lot of different people you get exposure to these issues Mm -hmm. and problems and um just kind of grow yeah i don't know if i would have done that when i was 18 tim what would you do yeah maybe i'm being too idealistic yeah (laughs) i know right i think i would have just been like working somewhere and playing video games (laughs) and not really doing much. maybe that's what the average person would do though or like yeah but i think even then like i would like to think that i would have gotten something out of it i just think there need to be more opportunities like they're talking about and it needs to be more apparent and obvious Mm. i feel like there's just not that much direction for kids it's sort of like well go to college or what else are you gonna do you know and maybe vocational programs are getting more steam. I would hope so, because mm-hmm. I think they're very valuable, um, teaching a trade or a craft of some sort to young people, because college isn't for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and to give them other avenues to uh, get a profession and career, I think it's worthwhile. And even things like coding, it's like, if you mm-hmm. can really do what you need to do at a job, then like you can get into a lot of places just by having certain skills. Right, right. So. Yeah. What did you think of the end, then? Uh, what happened at the end? Well, he talked about wiser kids, wiser universities, and then, like, a conclusion. Wiser societies. But what did he say exactly? I forget. Oh. <laughs> well, under wiser kids, he talked about parenting. Uh, prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. Mm. I thought that was a good one. A big idea throughout the book they talk to talk about safetyism safetyism refers to a culture or belief system in which safety has become a sacred value which means that people become unwilling to make trade-offs demanded by other practical and moral concerns safety trumps everything else no matter how unlikely or trivial the potential danger when children are raised in a culture of safetyism which teaches them to stay emotionally safe while protecting them from every imaginable danger it may set up a feedback loop Kids become more fragile and less resilient, which signals to adults that they need more protection, which then makes them even more fragile and less resilient. So you prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child, because the road is immovable, unchangeable. Life is going to have ups and downs, hiccups and potholes and, and, and curves that, blind curves that you don't see coming. So you don't, you cannot make the road smooth and comfortable for the child. You have to prepare the child to handle the bumps in life. And they they quote Van Jones, who's a CNN political course or commentator, mm-hmm. who I have a lot of respect for. I like Van Jones, and he talks about he talk, This is Van Jones talking about colleges, right? How colleges have become fo- too focused on safety. Van Jones says. I don't want you to be safe ideologically. I don't want you to be safe emotionally. I want you to be strong. That's different. I'm not going to pave the jungle for you. 
put on some boots, and learn how to deal with adversity. I'm not going to take all the weights out of the gym. That's the whole point of the gym. This is a gym. That's well said. I think so. Because that's how you grow stronger mentally. Absolutely. Is, yeah. Exercising those mental muscles. And I think with the point you brought up earlier in, this, in, in our talk is a good one, that trials and tribulations suck, but everybody that goes through adversity deep down inside will say that they are better off having gone through it. I know, and that's one thing I hate. I hate the fact that I had to go through Hodgkin's lymphoma to have some sort of better clarity on my view of life. But God damn it, it, it that's what it did. And, and the depression that I went through sucked and I hated every second of it. But by me going and seeking help and getting counseling helped give me the tools of cognitive behavioral therapy to help analyze my behavior, help analyze my thoughts, and help me realize that I am a better person for having gone through all that. So you're saying, hypothetically, if I said some awful things to you and made you more depressed, <laughs> then you would have to be thankful for me because <laughs> I'm doing you a favor, ultimately, in the long oh, run. Oh, <laughs> man. I don't know if I can say that, Tom. Caught you is, in a bind. <laughs> yeah. I think that is a little dish no, on your part. No, no, no. That's well said. Yeah, yeah. I think your general point is like, well, when it comes to parents, like, yeah. it's a natural parental inclination that you don't want your kid to go through a bunch of crap absolutely but at the same time it's like they're never going to grow unless they go through some stuff correct and and, and it's yeah go ahead. and it's knowing when to lessen the reins mm -hmm. and let the kid run a little bit and when to pull them in you know and, and that's tough and i and as, as not being a parent yet you know i i greatly look forward to being a parent i i reading this book has i think helped me become hopefully to become a better parent because I want my kid to be strong. I want my kid to be resilient. I think every, if you ask every parent, they would say, absolutely. I want my kid to be, you know, get through anything. What if he's a little twerpy nerd? Well, he's going to have to, he's going to have a long, hard road ahead of him then. But golly, I'll be there for him every step of the way. So, what do you think about the free range uh, parenting movement? I thought that was an interesting part of this book. I loved it. So, I mean, I think it's harder to do now. Yeah. I well, mean... Wasn't that what? funny, that one parent who's, like, sent her kid home on the subway, and yeah. she and everyone was saying she did, like, child abuse and stuff, because yeah. he was, like... like but the kid wanted that? to do it. You yeah, know, yeah. That's the thing. It's, like, don't force your kid to drop him off at some corner and, and make him work his way back home, mm -hmm. like, by reading a subway map and getting on and paying the fare and everything. You know... But her son legitimately wanted to do that. Right. So work with them. Be prepared. I felt like she had a good plan, and and let them do let them let them do what they want to do. But like, don't force it on them. That's the other thing. It's like, yeah, I, she never didn't force her kid to do anything. And yeah, I don't know much about parenting firsthand, but no. what I have seen uh, a couple examples of is like when some kids will fall or start crying, a lot of parents will kind of go yeah. rushing towards them and try to coddle them you know yeah. very directly and um and it's like a lot of parents though will just like just let their kid kind of get over it and they'll be okay uh -huh. you know like if you stub your toe or like trip right. a little bit like right. this happens all the time it's not the end of the world so it's like not making a mountain out of a molehill right. just kind of letting them get through these little trials and tribulations mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that will build up to bigger things in right. life right right yeah 
So I think we solved parenting and <laughs> society's problems and all that. I think we're, yeah. we're doing pretty well. Yeah, some other things I just want to bring up about in the section of wiser kids and talking about parenting. They, they say, uh, they have a quote from the Buddha. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. Yeah, I think that's that's well said. It's like the big takeaway is that life is tough and full of right. these challenges. But at the end of the day, like, you know, you're going to grow from stuff and you just right. need to be able to, to deal with things and handle them. Yeah. So what was your first social media platform you used? Was it Facebook? AIM instead of Messenger. A&M? Okay, yeah, I used that. I remember, yeah, AIM was a big one, and then Facebook came along. I joined Facebook when you still needed an .edu uh, email oh, address yeah, yeah. to log in. It was because, colleges and then high schools, Yeah, and then it became everybody, Yes, and then when parents got on, I got That's off. Like, <laughs> yeah, I tell you what now. Now that, I mean, now my friends are older, so they're like posting like baby pictures and like soccer games and... I think it, it makes more sense to me as a social network for like a college campus yes. where you're trying to get the pulse on what's going on. But it's like when you see grandparents, you know, trying to navigate the, clumsily mm-hmm. the social media platform, it feels a little awkward to me. It does. It's like they're trying to be everything to everybody and right. I don't think it's really working. True. I agree. I think it's become a behemoth that um, is definitely not what it was first started out as. But if they just keep acquiring other companies, then yeah, they'll be everything. I guess. They've got WhatsApp and Instagram. Yeah. And I think stuff. that's the big thing is they have so many users because people in the rest of the world use it to communicate in through in WhatsApp India and is, other stuff. Yeah. Facebook is still really popular, I yeah. think, with a lot of people too. Right. right. Um, but yeah. yeah. I mean, like, what did you think overall of the book though? I liked it. Yeah. I mean, there were times where I felt like maybe the authors were cherry picking these outlier examples from mm-hmm. campuses and possibly extrapolating or exaggerating what's going on. And there are times where I felt like they were this baby boomer kind of criticizing <laughs> the younger kids. Uh-huh. But um, but overall, I, I thought it was well done. Right. This is un- like in the first chapter on the untruth of um, the untruth of fragility. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Children, like many other complex adaptive systems, are anti-fragile. Their brains require a wide range of inputs from their environments in order to configure themselves for those environments. Like the immune system, children must be exposed to challenges and stressors within limits and in age-appropriate ways, or they will fail to mature into strong and capable adults, able to engage productively with people and ideas that challenge their beliefs and moral convictions. You don't have any quotes? Nah. Oh. I covered this pretty well. You did. I'm trying you had, to do you had good uh, notes yeah. overall. I, yeah, I'm trying to do more notes for your okay. quotes. Okay. Okay. How was the audiobook for this one? It was good. It was uh, Jonathan Haidt read it. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Hmm. And I liked his book, The Righteous Mind, a lot. I thought oh, yeah, that was read good. That one? Yeah. I've heard of that one, but I have not read it. All right. I'll limit it to two more quotes. How about that? Oh, yeah. These are a little long. Do though. as many as you want. All right. I feel like these last two summarize the book pretty well. Okay. This is, on, this is a quote from Chapter 8, Paranoid Parenting. After all, if focusing on big threats produces such dividends, why not go further and make childhood as close to perfectly safe as possible? 
A problem with this kind of thinking is that when we attempt to produce perfectly safe systems, we almost inevitably create new and unforeseen problems. For example, for example, efforts to prevent financial instability by bailing out companies can lead to larger and more destructive crashes later on. Efforts to protect forests by putting out small fires can allow deadwood to build up, eventually leading to catastrophic fires far worse than the sum of the smaller fires that we've prevented. Safety rules and programs, like most efforts to change complex systems, often have unintended consequences. Sometimes these consequences are so bad that the intended beneficiaries are worse off than if nothing had been done at all. We believe that efforts to protect children from environmental hazards and vehicular accidents have been very good for children. Exposure to lead and cigarette smoke confer no benefits. Being in a car crash without a seatbelt does not make kids more resilient in future car crashes. But efforts to protect kids from risk by preventing them from gaining ex experience, such as walking to school, climbing a tree, or using sharp scissors, are different. Such protections come with costs, as kids miss out on opportunities to learn skills, independence, and risk assessment. That's well said. I think so, too. Not all adversity is good, but right. in, in doses, yes, makes you stronger. Right. And I think this is, um, this was, I think, was in towards the very end of the book. Right. This is about society. We cannot absolutely prove that those are in air who tell us that society has reached a turning point, that we have seen our best days. But so said all who came before us, and with just as much apparent reason. On what principle is it that, when we see nothing but improvement behind us, we are to expect nothing but deterioration before us? These were actually words written by, in 1830 by Thomas Babington Macaulay, a British historian and member of parliament, basically saying that we have always been amazed at the progress of society to the, our current times. Like, you think about the Gilded Age back, you know, 1900s or 1920s or something, like the Roaring Twenties, or, you know, we always think the current times that we're living in are the greatest, you know, look at how far we've come, you know, in the past. But then when we turn to the future, we always look like with almost despair, like, what is the future going to bring? Like how, you know, like, oh, look at all these things that are, that might kill us or, or tear us apart or, you know, but there's never been a time when we've reached that tipping point yet. You know, we, that seems to be the pattern is that in the present, we always think we're so great, but projecting in the future, we kind of worry about the fate of humanity. Whereas in our past, we've got to look at that pattern and see that we're always going to think things are always going to be worse in the future, it seems. But look at our past and see how far we've come and you can appreciate that things might get even better than yeah we can imagine. we're kind of naturally prone to this negative mindset yeah. where everything feels like a crisis and not to downplay issues that are going on in the present but like who's the guy steven pinker mm -hmm. who writes about how like statistically everything is for the most part getting better on just about right. every front right so yeah you've got to kind of zoom out look at the bigger picture mm -hmm. and realize we're fortunate to live in like a relatively peaceful thriving time right so chill out. Yes. Everyone take a chill pill. Yeah. I guess that's a good one, good way to end it, right? Because the world's gotten a little more crazy this past month, but we'll get through it still. Yeah, right? I hope so. I mean, it's scary because nobody really knows what's going to happen. It's, it's scary because it's like a long, drawn out... Um, people, like, people compare this time to 9-11. Mm-hmm. 
or like a big hurricane or something. But those are like one day, two days, or you know, like they're 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 an event. It happens and then it's over. This has been a much more drawn out process. We're in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. We don't know where it's going, but if we just stay home, which I'm excellent at doing, by the way, social distancing is my forte, and we'll get through this too. It's a good time to be an introvert and yeah. uh, just chill. So you know, millennials and Gen Z, I hope you you guys don't aren't too mad at me. I'm a millennial myself, so on the edge. Yeah. Elder millennial. <laughs> yeah, I know. But anyway, so what do you think, Tim? What do you give this book? Uh, out of five? Yeah. I didn't really think about it until just now. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. I usually... You knew this question was coming, right? I you, know. You've I, done these podcasts with Yeah, before, it's only like right? our 30th yeah. one. Um, <laughs> I think I'm just trying to decide probably four. I was like between a oh, three and a four. Okay. I think... Uh, as a book, the way it's written and the author's opinions, I think I feel like it's kind of a three, like kind of oversimplified mm. here and there, and maybe whatever. But the, in terms of the material, it's very important. Mm. Like I think as a country, we need to kind of figure out these issues because we'll be better off once we kind of decide the best way to move forward. Right. So, so what's your topic wise, four. It's important. Four. I give it a four. I give it a four as well. I liked it. I'm not copying off you, Tim. <laughs> I'm not. That's all right. I like the book. I mean, it's not perfect. What would what could have made it better? Like, to me, it felt a little bit like he was just kind of. He's like, these are the three untruths, and these are the six explanations, mm-hmm. and it's a little too cut and dry. Like, it's an easy framework for what's going on. And then he, like I was saying, he cherry picks these examples of crises among campus campuses. Sure. But it's like, I don't know. It felt a little too structured, I guess. When really, world the world's a more messy place than that. Mm-hmm. Like he's trying to, yeah. I appreciated the structure, though. I liked the fact that they laid it out in in those terms. I liked the untruths. I, you know, I liked how they broke it down. But I agree, you know, it is a messy topic, and maybe trying to find a systematic way of explaining it is not doing the whole problem justice. Mm-hmm. So I agree with you there. So that's why I give it a four, because uh, I still really like it and the topic is very important yeah 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 i wonder what so what do you think the future of college campuses are going to be like like i i bet there's going to be a lot more remote schooling i think that's going to get bigger right plus if you're like i don't know like it's so expensive these days Uh the cost just seems to go up and up like at a certain point is it worth it and especially that's why i think during a gap year is important because it's like take a year figure out what you want to do and then you'll be more focused and determined I think that's absolutely right. I think if you can find that focus right out of high school, great. If you need to take a gap year, take a gap year. But I think that is goes a long way into actually deter- picking the school too. Because different schools have different programs that have strengths. So if you know, like if you think you're gonna be an engineer, go to a good engineering school. But if you're right out of high school and you're not sure, and you and you think you might be an engineer, you go to you pick a good engineering school and then realize you don't want to be an engineer, and then you're going to be like history. Then maybe that school wasn't wouldn't be the best school for you to do. You know. So I think there's a lot of things like that. I think, I think with AP courses and like you know, kids and seniors in high school are now taking college credit courses to get gen eds out of the way. So I feel like that's inevitable that more of the basic courses will be available online, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll see. 
and there's a lot of like independent learning you can do on your own to yeah. kind of yeah see what you're drawn towards yeah so that's worth it too so figure it out kids yeah <laughs> it's not that hard no no, no just pressure just the rest of your life you just know? your entire life yeah all right so what are we reading next time tim the uh, exhalation by ted Cheng. yeah yeah, so it's like sci-fi short stories. I think he wrote the original like Arrival, that movie we both like. He yes. wrote a short story that that was kind of based on, I think. Right. Um, so yeah, it should be interesting. Yeah, you have you haven't started it. Yet? I haven't started. Okay. You started, right? I have. Yes. Cool. You love, you love right. it. I just read the first story. Don't tell me. And I will have to say, I like short story collections. I do. And this is our first short story it collection is. that we've done. Yeah. So we should only do those from now on. Really. <laughs> I don't know if I can do that. All right. But anyway. So, all right. Go to our website, two guys, one book, all spelled out. Dot org? Dot com. Dot net? Dot com. Oh, uh, okay. You, by saying them, you're just going to confuse them. <laughs> two guys, one book, dot com, all spelled out. You can you can leave comments about this episode or past episodes or upcut. We have our next, uh, we have our next four books up there um, that you can comment on and give us your thoughts if you've read them before and we can try to include them in the episode if you're... You know, we'll try to keep doing episodes. We'll see how the coronavirus keeps going. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah. All right. So, until next time, keep reading. Keep reading.